Bibles tonight to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, not chapter 4, but chapter 6. And let's take these words tonight as words of instruction to us from the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ on how we can serve Him that should be the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. Ephesians chapter 6. Prayer has been offered. Let's, let me read to you the three verses that we've already read in this chapter, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Amen. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Right. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Amen. We've already explained, verse 12, that our battle is spiritual, not carnal, with flesh and blood opponents. I want you to notice in verse 10 the finality of this warning to the Ephesian saints to be strong in the Lord. That's an imperative verb construction of something we're to do. Be strong. It's not a description of what God will do for us. It's telling us to be strong. And then he tells us how to do it. He says it's in the power of his might by putting on the whole armor of God. That's how we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might by putting on his armor. We come to verse 13. It says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Now you need it to be able to stand. As I explained two weeks ago, a week ago, our goal is not to go out and find Satan and take his head off. Our goal, if by the grace of God, is to stand. He is a far greater opponent for us than we would be able to handle, trying to take him on and destroy him. We have a brother who's destroyed him already. Our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our job to stand as his blood-bought children. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. There are some days that are going to be more evil than others. And in those evil days, we're going to have onslaughts made against our souls for us to give ground. But if we've got the whole armor of God on, if we're strong in the Lord and the power of His might, we can withstand in the evil day. If we do not give place. We've looked at the examples in the Bible of giving place. We've looked at the warnings of giving place. Now we need to look at this armor that we're told to take to be able to stand. Verse 14. Stand, therefore... Because of what I've just said in four verses, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, as we take up this armor, you might as well get used to me. Most of you should be. I am not a spiritualizer, and I don't go very far in taking the words of Scripture that weren't intended for you to take far. I want the words that the Lord wants us to take, and I leave the others. I have read so much, so many paragraphs on Greek armor, Roman armor, Macedonian armor, Canaanite armor. And you know what? The Lord doesn't care, and neither did the Apostle Paul. He is using a metaphor for you to pick up six things that you're supposed to have. And then the seventh is what you're supposed to be doing once you get the six strapped into place. Amen. Amen. And it's the most important of all. Amen. But we, need, we have six pieces of armor here. Five are defensive. One's offensive. It's defensive because we are just trying to stand right. our ground and to stand fast and not move. And our one offensive weapon is to resist him so that he'll leave us. Right. Now... I could talk to you and preach to you. We could take tonight and preach about loins and girdles used by Roman and Greek soldiers. 
But that is not the point of the apostle. Let me see if I can just show you enough that it's not. According to verse 14, what is the breastplate? According to verse 16, what is the shield? Okay, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 8. 1 Thessalonians 5 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Now, notice over here the Apostle Paul makes the breastplate faith and love. In Ephesians 6, the breastplate is righteousness, and the shield is faith. Do you know what I gather from that? Thank you, Paul. Right. It doesn't matter. Amen. He wants... Can you just... Listen, if you want to be entertained, I'll loan you my books. I don't have enough time to read all that stuff. I want someone to read to me how important truth is. Right. Not all about the loins. Not all about girdles. And what they looked like and how they strapped them on and what other pieces of the armor were connected to them and all that. I want to know what the Lord wants me to put on so that I can stand against the devil. Now you say, you may think that I'm cheating here and not giving you the full sense of the Word of God. This is, you're in the wrong place then. Brother, when I, if I look at the Good Samaritan, all I see is, who is my neighbor? Right. I don't see the Old and the New Testament in the two pence that were left with the innkeeper. I don't see the gospel and the wine that was poured into the poor wounded Jew's wounds. I just don't see any of that. All I see is that a man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, there was a certain Samaritan. (laughs) It's to answer the question, who is my neighbor? So when I come into this armor, I'm not going to entertain you tonight with lots of stories about the Greeks and the Romans. I want to go right after what we're supposed to put on. We've got six pieces of armor. Five defensive and one offensive. The first defensive piece is truth in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. Remember this about the devil. Jesus said to the Jews, Ye are of your father the devil, for he was a liar from the beginning. The devil's a liar and hates truth. When we look at these aspects of armor that we're supposed to put on to defend ourselves against the attacks of the devil, we first of all want to look at them in their absolute sense, and then as we live them out. So when we look at truth, God has already determined truth in the Word of God. And I can say to you tonight that truth is certain and absolute. And if you think that truth is other than certain and absolute, you have a chink in your armor... You have a problem in your armor, and you're going to give place to the devil. You better love truth, and you better not want to hear truth debated, discussed, questioned, or modified, because truth is certain and absolute. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in Truth. truth. When Jim started the series on Luke, the first four verses of Luke are that I have written unto you that you might know the certainty. The, would this, listen, how long do I need to talk about truth? If Eve would have understood what I've said so far, would we be eating of the tree of life? Yep. Yes, we would. If, if she'd have listened to what I've said so far, because she didn't believe that truth was absolute and certain, because she let Satan move her off of the certainty and the absolute nature of God's word. God said, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Amen. Cute. Valid. Right. We ought to remember that. If she would have remembered that, she wouldn't have eaten the fruit off that tree. She fudged with truth. How many examples can I turn you to? You know that Paul said, Though we, or a what? An angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. accursed. You hold on to truth like that, you're not going to give place to the devil in the whole category of your loins 
whatever those are, because you've got truth protecting you from the devil, because you are not going to allow truth to be modified. Right. How many times in the, we had a whole church in Galatia. Did they have their loins girt about with truth? Oh, my. Galatians, Paul wants to know, Who hath bewitched you that ye have not believed the gospel? How soon ye are removed from him that called you into the gospel of the grace of Christ? On and on he goes. He says in Galatians 2.5 that as soon as he figured out which brethren from Jerusalem were causing these errors, he said, I didn't give... Listen to this. Galatians 2.5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Is that an intolerant attitude? Yes. Because the devil wants you to be tolerant. What do you think is behind all all the... current talk and legislation of hate crimes because we're to be tolerant. It is satanic. As soon as you become tolerant, like all these great movements, like the Bill Gothard movement, like Promise Keepers, where you get 15,000 men together from Jews to Mormons in a stadium and you all sing Amazing Grace together, you're giving place to the devil. Because pretty soon, you will water down your convictions about the Word of God, and He will just devour you. Right. Truth. Don't ever compromise truth. There's, there's, you're you're going to use the outlines, right? Good. So I don't need to use every reference that I've got here. Truth is certain and absolute. It's the basis for God's religion. And the devil's a liar. So that if you are armed with truth... He's already to disadvantage because you've got God at certain truth. And do you know what? He's a liar to you, but he knows that truth. Don't, don't forget that. When it says he's a liar, he's lying to you. He lied to Eve. He knows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but he'll lie to everyone else that he isn't. He knows. And if you've got the truth on, he knows the truth is impregnable if you will not compromise it. That's right. Because he knows a certain man named Christ Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Therefore, if we believe in the certainty and absolute nature of the truth of God, we should walk in all honesty before this world and to be known for truthfulness in all of our dealings with men. We take God's certain truth in the Word of God, and then we apply it in our lives, not only to believe what He has said, which is the absolute truth of Scripture, but also in all of our dealings to be without offense before the world by providing all things honest in the sight of all men. That is how we live truth. And when you're living truth, the devil can't get in. For those of you with older children, haven't you ever told your children what happens when they tell the first lie? Mm -hmm. If you're not living honestly and you compromise in some area of your life and you tell one lie, then what do you have to do? Tell more. To keep covering your tracks and protecting yourselves to try to get out of telling that one lie. And isn't it wonderful being a parent and watching those little sweet things? do that to you, and you know better, and you're watching them do it, you know why they did it. I love to catch my children and say, I know why, I know that you lied, and I know why you lied. Would you like to tell me? You know, and they're just blown away. But it's easy for a parent, and the Lord will always honor parents. But if we're living truthfully, what an advantage we've got right there. The devil cannot take advantage of us. If you are hypocritical, In any relationship with someone, the devil knows that and will get a wedge into your life and will pull you down because you are not a man of integrity. And because we're the saints of God and he's given us truth, let us return to him the fact that before this world we are always honest in all of our dealings. Verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Has God established righteousness for us? 
Absolutely. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the message of the gospel, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so my word to you is, Jesus Christ has already established perfect righteousness for you. Therefore, Satan should never be able to give doubts into your mind that you have a problem before God. Your sins have been paid for. Satan can no longer get before the Lord to accuse us to the Lord but he can certainly get around us to accuse us to ourselves. But he can't do that if you've got the breastplate of righteousness on because you know that you're standing in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever you get those doubts, it is your responsibility to go back to the Word of God and remember the promises of the Word of God that you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Satan, you cannot attack me that way because Jesus Christ paid for all of my sins and applied to my account his perfect righteousness. Forget it. If you can find fault with the Son of God, then you can find fault with me. That's the answer. Because he is our righteousness. Who is he that condemneth? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. When a man's justified, what does that mean? He's righteous. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That is your breastplate of righteousness, impregnable against Satan's attacks of accusations, reproaches, and doubts about your salvation. You are righteous through Jesus Christ. If God has made us righteous through Christ Jesus, we are then called to righteousness ourselves. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. How do we stand against the devil? We first of all stand in the truth. He cannot sell us one of his lies if we are holding to the word of God and not allowing it to be compromised. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7. The apostle describes his way of life by saying that he lived by the word of truth by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The Apostle Paul conducted himself in a righteous way so that there was no way to accuse him of wrongdoing. And he goes on the same chapter to say in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And there he's telling us to be separate and to live righteous lives. And isn't that's what we've been preaching? Right. The, the, the holier lives we live, what is he going? Where is he going to get his hold in your life? But if you are living unrighteously in one little area of your life, he will get that little area of your life, and he'll devour you eventually if you don't regain it by repentance. Amen. And conversion. So first of all, when it comes to righteousness. Satan will attack us with doubts that before the Lord, we're we're pretty guilty. We all know we're guilty. But we forget something whenever we think about that. Jesus Christ paid for those sins in full. When he said, it is finished, remind the the devil of those words. It is finished. What was finished? The transaction in paying for our sins. Therefore, there is no guilt. There's no doubt to a believer. His sins have been paid for. The Apostle Paul could write in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I know whom I have believed, right. and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Amen. He had confidence. The devil can't get a hold in a person like that. Now, someone who isn't fully convinced that Jesus Christ paid for their sins, you'll find them thumbing the rosary. And there the devil devours them. And they live unproductive lives because they're afraid of their own sins, not knowing the glorious message that we know that we have a breastplate of righteousness to put on, and it's the righteousness of Christ. And then because of that righteousness, we are to live righteously and soberly and godly in this present world, as Jim told us earlier tonight from Titus chapter 2. 
Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Soldiers wore boots, especially the Roman Empire. The Roman armies wore boots of iron. Thorns, thistles, stones, whatever, would not stop the boots of a Roman army. You could hear them coming in the street. It was a terrifying sound. But we're to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Peace. What does the devil want to attack you with? What does this armor do for us? Satan wants to attack you with doubts, fear, worry, anxiety, distractions, and a loss of your Christian joy. That's what he wants to do to you. But by putting on the armor of what Jesus Christ has done, you can defend yourself against him and stand. So that when he comes against you and tries to make you worry or doubt or fear, you're standing in the pure peace given to us by God. First of all, God established peace at the cross of Calvary. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 tells us in verse 19 that it pleased the Father that in Jesus Christ should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And if you're constantly remembering and mentioning the blood of Jesus Christ, that is the basis for your peace with God. Satan cannot violate that if you'll hold it. Only when you forget it can he throw something your way to make you think that I I don't think God's at peace with me. Jesus Christ has already made peace by the blood of his cross. No matter what Satan says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Constantly looking at Jesus Christ, the fairest of 10,000 that we sang earlier, constantly looking at him is the basis for our peace with God, and Satan cannot interrupt it, no matter what he says. Once we have that peace from God and are established on it, we're to live at peace in our lives. Philippians 4, 6-7 through 7 tells me this, that once I know that I have peace with God, to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let my requests be made known unto God, and the peace, peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What's the devil trying to do? Get you to fear get you to worry, get you to be anxious, get you to be careful. And what does the Lord tell us? I've bought peace for you. My peace I give unto you. Trust me for everything. Don't be careful for anything, and I'll give you a peace that passes understanding. If you'll remember the peace that God's established for you in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, and then he offers you Peace that passes understanding. Right. Satan has, Satan comes along and looks and says, that man's impregnable. Look at the peace in his life. Nothing worries him. Satan sees that, and he'll leave you because you've got armor on called peace. Now, if you don't believe that you have peace with God or you are not turning all the things over into your life like casting all your cares upon him for he careth for you, or you're not trusting in the Lord God Jehovah like Isaiah 26 verses 3 and 4. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength and thou will keep his mind in perfect peace whose mind is stayed. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You keep your mind on the peace that God gives and trusting him, Satan comes along, And he knows that it's not going to move you. Job had that peace, didn't he? Right. Did Job have that peace? Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. What a peaceful way to look at life. Mm -hmm. Now the Lord let Satan have Job for quite a while. And we all know what happened after 3.1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. When would you have gone down? with that temptation about one four when would i have gone down about one three job didn't go down till three one right 
we can commend our brother. Amen. You know, the Lord's merciful. Amen. You know, in that book, he doubled everything he had in the end right. because God knew what a horrible test that was of our brother Job. And so he doubled everything to him in the end, and he let Job live 140 years beyond that. He got to see his children down to the fourth generation. Right. And the New Testament wants you to know about that because it says, don't forget how pitiful the Lord is. Right. When the Lord sends you through a temptation that's hard, the Lord knows it's hard. Amen. And the Lord is very pitiful, right. full of pity. That's comforting. Amen. Job had peace. Satan will bring little things your way and see if he can disrupt your peace. If he can disrupt your peace with little things, he knows he's got a place where you don't have any armor. He can try to do it with your eternal peace with God, or he can try to do it in the peace in your life. If you get disrupted, and I do know what I'm talking about, if little things going wrong when you like to lead an orderly life disrupt the peace in your life, now are we getting the message a little clearer? He knows that and he sees that. And he can bring a lot of little things along. And he can bring them on top of each other. Especially when he knows that about three of them give you the sense of being overwhelmed. But if we are established in the peace of God, first what he's done for us in giving us peace, and then in casting all our cares upon him, be careful for nothing. Just be thankful and go on. Is peace. We've got a piece of armor up called peace. And then he says in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. Amen. Taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. All the doubts and the confusion and the impatience that Satan tries to throw at us in the form of darts. We can quench those darts with faith. Faith that knows and believes that he that diligently seeks God will be found of God. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. God rewards those that have faith. What is faith? It's the evidence of all of God's promises. If God has promised something, taught us something, told us something, faith gives those promises evidence. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You may not have seen heaven. You may not have seen Jesus Christ. But faith is the evidence that will bear up in the highest court in this universe. Heaven. That Jesus did exist, does exist, will exist, and will sit as judge on heaven's throne. So that when the devil tries to come along and make us doubt the promises of God. And oh, he wants to make you doubt the promises of God. The Lord's going to leave you at times to see what's in your heart, to try you, and to see if you're going to seek him. When those moments occur and Satan is there, he's going to make you think that the Lord doesn't care about you anymore. The Lord's not coming back. How many times the psalmist say, how long? I mean, over and over. How long? How long? Well, I just want to remind you of something, that you better believe that God's coming back, because He is. He will come back to your soul. Oh, when wilt thou come to me? We've read it twice now from Psalm 101 in the last few weeks. Oh, when wilt thou come to me? But faith is that confidence in God's promises that is not moved. If God said it, I absolutely believe it, and I'm not going to be moved off it. That's a promise I'm counting on. You're not going to move me from that promise. Satan? Abraham appeared to... God appeared to Abraham, excuse me. God appeared to Abraham and said, I have made thee a father of many nations. Now, what would you say to that statement? I have made thee a father of many nations. Are are there any in here that want to correct God's grammar? Since Abraham didn't have any children, I have made thee a father of many nations. You know it's my favorite example in the Bible. Doesn't everybody know that? Romans 4, 17 through 21. 
I have made thee a father of many nations. Abraham believed it. Abraham believed that God can call those things which be not as though they were. God does not have to use verb tenses as we use them. He can call it in the past tense when it's not even done yet because he's going to make sure that it gets done. Do you believe God that much? Do you believe God enough that when you read a promise in Scripture, you're able to look at that promise and not consider all the natural questions that come flooding up into your mind? Um, Where do those questions come from? Have you ever run into someone that all they can do is ask questions? They never want to believe anything. They have no faith at all. All they want to do is question. You know where that... You know who's motivating that person? Satan. That is not seeking the truth. Seeking the truth doesn't ask a lot of questions. Seeking the truth does some searching in the scriptures. How do we know that, Acts 17, 11? These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. They're not sitting there critically wanting to ask a lot of questions. They're wanting to go search the scriptures and they're trying to receive it. Questions. And we meet those want to ask questions all the time about everything. That is not a godly desire for truth. Yea, hath God said, Eve, are you sure that's just the way it was stated? Are you sure you didn't miss something? Didn't you, couldn't you read between the lines that God was trying to keep you away from that tree because you could be like him? And on and on he goes with his questions. Faith believes. Abraham looked at himself. He knew he was dead. He looked over at Sarah. She was dead. The two of them, now that's doubly impossible, isn't it? But he considered not his own body, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's wombs, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Do you believe everything in the Word of God, every single word of it, absolutely certain, without a doubt? You're not going to be moved off any promise when he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you believe that even when you feel like he's forsaken you? Do you know what he said? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. When I said that he leaves you sometimes, did I mean that he violates that promise? No, I did not mean that. He never leaves you in that sense. But sometimes he will simply withdraw some of the special blessings of his presence to see if you'll ask him for him back. It's the, it's the living example of all the t- testimonies in Scripture. Why do you think the Psalms are given to us? David had that over and over again. Oh, when wilt thou come to me? I'm going to harp on those words until you all understand it. That David had moments like that, so he resolves in his heart, I am going to do exactly what the Lord wants me to do, and I know when I'm doing what he wants me to do, I can say, oh, when. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Amen. Right. It's not if he will come to me, it's when he will come to me. He will. And when he comes, it's so sweet. What do, what do they say about human love? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Don't they? Say? And we understand that to agree, to a degree. And we have that, our, that own statement in our language. Do you understand that? When he comes back, it is so precious. <clears throat> He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? That's what faith does. That is the shield of faith. When those doubts come at you, I mean, it can be anything from creation. You might sit in a class where some man speculates, but you forget that he's speculating, and you hear 20 reasons why creation can't be true and evolution is. How strong is your shield? Don't you? I don't Sounds good to me. Hold up that shield. Don't you love those opportunities? Now, there are some times where the Lord's going to let us get tested by darts. But some of those, I hope that you look forward to them to be able to hold up your shield and say, forget all your questions. I may not be able to answer them, but God already has. I fully understand how the heavens and the earth were created. By faith. Hebrews 11.3. It can come down to the sonship of Jesus Christ. You may not be able to give all the explanations. They may take you back into some anthropomorphism of the Old Testament, and you'll say, what in the world is that big long word that you just said? And you'll say, all I know is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. You're okay. Believe it by faith. 
and consider not all the questions that ungodly, unbelieving men can raise. Faith can quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation. We read that also in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but we had a little word added to it there. It's called the helmet of the hope of salvation. Satan does not want you to have any hope. How can he do that? He can get you into a job where you don't think there's any future. He can get you into a marriage where you don't think there's much fulfillment. He can get you into kids that give you more problems than pleasure. He can get you into a church where there seem to be problems from time to time. He can do things so that you feel that your life is not reaching that place that you want it to. Your career isn't going where you want it. Your marriage isn't going where you want it. I feel hopeless. You're supposed to put on a helmet. And that helmet is the hope of salvation. If you ever get the helmet all the way on so that it's fitted tight down around your head, you're not going to worry a whole lot about your marriage, and you're not going to worry a whole lot about your career, nor your children, nor your church, in this sense, that all your hope is going to be in the salvation to get you out of this place. Because... This world is always going to disappoint you. Every pastor is going to disappoint you. Every brother is going to disappoint you. Every marriage is going to dis- There's only one marriage that's going to make you perfectly happy. Amen. You, un- you unmarried people. I'm- You're just moving from one state of hopelessness to another when you get married. And I'm, I'm just trying to be realistic. There's good things in marriage. It's a blessing from the Lord. The Bible tells us that. But I want to tell you, marriage is not the end of life. Do you know what the end of life is? The glory of God and being in His presence. And if you're finding all your happiness in marriage, the devil, you've already given place to the devil. If you're already living for that wife or living for that husband or you're living for that career, you've already given place and he is going to devour you because your affection and your hope had better be on things above, on the salvation that Jesus Christ has wrought for us. The transaction of paying for our sins and delivering us from an eternal torment in hell where the devil and his angels will suffer forever and ever, I cannot describe that to you. It is beyond description. And for us to ever compare anything in life to that is unbelievable. That is the hope of the believer, that Jesus Christ is coming back, he's going to save me from death in the grave, and deliver me into heaven to live eternally. In the light of that, everything else pales and fades into insignificance. And you say, it doesn't pale and fade into insignificance like I want it to. Then pull the helmet a little tighter and strap it on a little harder. And get into the Word of God and look at the salvation that we have and get your eyes off of this earth, even if they're looking at your spouse. Your spouse, listen, you men, if you're married, all you're doing is leading about a sister. It's not the end of life. The end of life is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and eternity in heaven. Blood-bought, sanctified, made righteous forever and ever and glorified perfectly with a glorified body in his presence. That's the end of our existence, and that's what we've got to think about and live for, and that's the hope of salvation. The devil wants to get you focused on your family. I have seven children. Do I know what I'm talking about? I have a wife. I've had careers. And when you, when you shift your attention from God down to any one of those, and you say a family is so noble, do you know that in America, in American Christianity, it's almost like if you're putting your family first, you are a godly woman. Family isn't first. The Lord Jesus Christ is first. Amen. And the hope of eternal life is first. Because if you get your eyes off of that angle... Down to this angle, you are in trouble. Because the wife or the husband is always going to disappoint you. Now, I know nobody wants to shout amen right now and raise their hand and say, that's true in my marriage, because 
it'd be mortifying to do so. But I'm going to go ahead and say it for all of you because it's true. Amen. And I have a good wife. Amen. That isn't the end of life. And all you young people, I'm telling you, it's not the end of life. You will move from one opportunity for hopelessness to another one. I know I'm sounding very critical of marriage, but everybody knows what I think about marriage too. Amen. All I'm trying to do is lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. David, David, did David have some good wives? That was Solomon. David wasn't far behind, though. It was a bad example for Solomon. David had many. But I read over there in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven or on earth but thee? Amen. I don't know how to say it any better than I'm saying it right now. That's the, that's the helmet of the hope of salvation. And if you ever get that pulled on tight, the devil cannot give you a hopeless life. We have a brother up here in the front row who was hopeless once in his life. He, he likes to talk about it. You know why he likes to talk about it? Because now he's so full of hope. Did you hear his hope tonight? Yep. <laughs> the Lord's delivered him. And I love, I love it. He may have been more hopeless than the rest of us, but you know what? We're all tempted to be hopeless, aren't we? Does everyone know what I'm talking about, or am I just blowing here in the wind? No. Do you look at your children, you look at your husband, you look at your wife, and you look at your career, and you get kind of hopeless sometimes? You're looking at the wrong angle. Right. Raise the elevation, and you'll be okay. And you'll give no place to the devil, and you'll be able to stand fast. Amen. Right. Now we come down to verse 17. The last part of it says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Right here. Your authorized version of 1611, the Holy Scriptures given by God. You have them in your language. This is the sword of the Spirit. You can't go in your bedroom and wave it around. It's not going to hit a spirit. I was ordained by a man when in his ignorance, when he was young, thought that by sleeping with this on his chest would protect him at night. In his ignorance, he's not nearly so ignorant. It isn't operated on. It is, it's not used that way. Right. Here's how it's used. Turn these stones into bread. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus Christ knew how to use it. Did Joseph know how to use it? Potiphar has given me responsibility for everything in this house <coughs> except you. How could I commit so great a sin against God? Right. Now, we don't have the words it is written there, but where did he get that lesson from? Because his father had sat him down and taught him the commandments of the Word of God. And that's what you're going to hear that very soon. The Lord is looking for a godly seed in this earth. Right. He doesn't care what kind of careers they have. He wants a godly seed. And a godly seed are spiritually minded young people that grow up into spiritually minded adults right. that have their affections set on things above, yeah. that are wearing the helmet of salvation, all the other pieces of this armor, and we do it by using the Word of God. Yeah. It's coming. Be ready for it. You can read Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. You can read Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6. We are looking for a godly seed in our children. You're not going to need 22 sermons on child training. You're going to need a couple to remind you that every day of their lives, you better be feeding them the word of God because it is the sword of the Spirit by which we defend ourselves against the devil. Right. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? Psalm 119, verse 9. By taking heed thereto according to thy word. If a young man wants to be, defend himself against all the temptations, especially of America in the year 2000, especially with women, what do you think it means when it's talking about young men? Psalm 119 and verse 9. It's the sword of the Spirit. We don't wave it. We don't wear it in our chest. We don't put it in little boxes on our foreheads like the Pharisees. We learn it so that we can say it is written. It is written. Now... It's not enough just for you to hear me preach it. You've Paul wrote the Hebrew Christians in Hebrews chapter 5, and he says this about them, and this is a shame to be written to a church. But listen to these words. When for the time ye ought to be teachers, 
You people ought to be teachers. But ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. If you're not able to use the word of righteousness, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I know that's a mouthful, but it's so good. Listen again. Those that are of full age, mature soldiers, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Are you one of those? Are you able to read the newspaper, listen to the news, listen to a conversation at work, see a situation with your children, hear about a domestic problem with the neighbors, any situation, and know how the Word of God applies to it and use it? Do you know there's an answer in there for every single thing you'll encounter in this life? I don't care if it was written in 1611. I don't care if it was written in the year 60 by the Apostle Paul or in the year 1200 B.C. by Moses. It is relevant for the year 2000. It'll answer every question. But do you know how to use it? It's not enough to come in here on Sundays and hear me use a few verses. It's not enough for you to read your three chapters blowing through it in seven minutes every morning. Do you read the newspaper, watch the news? If you watch the news, that was not a suggestion. If you watch the news or in any discussion of what's going on in this world, locally in your neighborhood or anywhere else, are you able to take the word of God and apply it? A man that can do that has his senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And guess what? When Satan comes along, you can keep him at bay at the point of a sword. It is written. It is written. But if you do not know the word of God, he gets very close. He gets right up and puts his loving arms around you to devour you. But you can keep him at the point of a sword if you know the Bible. It's not, mere, it's not sheer memorization. Nope. It's memorizing the right verses and knowing how to apply them. Amen. Whole study in itself, but even working on it at all. Every time, how many dilemmas do you face a day that you hear about at work or anywhere else? How many of them do you actually take the time? What is the Bible answer for that? And I want to tell you something. I've told you that I might not be available to talk about insurance But if you want to get a quick one, come on. I like calls like that. Because guess what it's going to make me do? It's going to make me exercise my senses to discern good and evil. And I want that. If you see something and you can't think of a verse right then, but you know it's your duty to know a verse, call me. And I'll try to give you one. If I can give you one, it's by the grace of God. But I want to have them. Five pieces of defensive armor and one piece of offensive armor is listed in verses 14 through 17. So much more could be said about the Bible. But brethren, it's not enough, to ha- it's not enough for us to believe the King James Bible. Does that do us any good? Nope. A little tiny bit of truth. A tiny little, a little tiny bit of faith. But what about the actual sword of the Spirit? It's the ability to feel, know, and sense a temptation to evil and be able to say it is written. That is a skill. That is a skill of a trained soldier. If you are not developing that, and if we are not developing that in our children, we are failing as parents. The dinner table at our home... Get ready. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 6, Malachi 2.15. Just get ready. You know, we spend time helping them with their homework. And don't anybody get in here defensive about my attitude toward education. You're going to hear my attitude toward education. It's because I want the education that God wants us to give our children. I want to leave this planet with five men that have a godly seed in this earth if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries. And a godly seed has nothing to do with the career they have. I do not care what they do for a living as long as they live standing against the wiles of the devil and living a life for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the last of my concerns. But when we sit at the table and we talk 
about events that have taken place in our lives during that day. I want to be able to bring the word of God to bear. I want them to learn it. And someday I want to sit back with when I'm old and senile and hear them doing it. Mm-hmm. That's our goal in child training. Yeah. Spiritually minded young men and women that know how to pull the word of God and say it is written. There's the answer. What do we do with that armor? This is this to me is precious. Now, you know it's easy to say I love truth. I'm sh- I'm shielded with the breastplate of righteousness. I've got my helmet on. I've got my feet in the boots of the gospel of peace, and I've got the sword of the spirit. I'm ready to face the devil. Oh, no, you're not. Do you know what you're supposed to be doing with that armor? You're standing, but look at verse 18. There is not a period at the end of verse 17. There is an activity. When you are engaged in this activity, the devil is no match for you. But how much are we engaged in this activity? I will not embarrass you again, but I'm asking you, how much have you been engaged in the activity of verse 18? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto, that is with all prayer and supplication, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for the ministry. That's what you should be doing. If this church is going to be great, and it's the desire of your pastor for this church to be great, and more than that, who cares? It's the desire of the head of this church for this church to be great. Do you know how this church gets great? It's more of verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. You are in the Spirit when you are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And you have the love of Jesus Christ in your soul. And you have mortified all the deeds of the flesh. You're in the Spirit. When you, and if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. I'm, I'm so far from finishing this, and I wanted to finish it tonight, that the... The chief antagonism in the universe is Jesus Christ versus Satan. All of his efforts are to demote, defy, and belittle, and draw you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? You can read theological books as long as they're not promoting your love of Jesus. You can do almost anything, but if it gets too christ centric or too christ oriented it becomes much harder to read that's the flesh balking against the glory of the lord jesus christ if you are in the spirit there's only one subject that makes you happy (laughs) it's there's only one subject it's been i haven't preached on the five phases yet have i now i love the five phases because it lifts up my Lord Jesus Christ. But right, right now, I want to preach on Jesus Christ himself and living for him. Right. Because if, if you're loving him, living for him, and you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and you want to sing because you're filled with the Spirit, remember, if he, I don't mean singing along with the country western tunes on your way to work. I don't mean singing along with Jim, Bob, and Billy, or whatever they're called, with Rock 101. I'm talking about involuntarily almost singing hymns of praise to the Lord because you are filled with the Spirit and you've mortified the deeds of the flesh. You know what you ought to be doing when you're like that? Pray, brethren, pray! Pray! Look what he says, praying always. This doesn't need a lot of interpretation, does it? Praying always with all prayer and supplication. When you supplicate someone, what are you doing? You're begging them. You're begging them and you're begging the Lord for strength in this battle against the devil. 
You strap on these five defensive pieces of armor, learn the word of God all you want, have a stack of cards that high on your supper table that you've memorized with your family, and you know how to apply them, and if you're not praying in the Holy Ghost, you're going down. Because the strength for the battle is the Lord's. Do you know what the Lord wants to do? He wants to see you stand and your enemies fall before you. How many times has He... Don't you, haven't you read those stories in the Old Testament? Where the, where the Lord would say to a king, Stand still and see the salvation of God. Amen. You stand in that armor and you pray and you'll see things happen. But there's, this prayer is qualified. It's always and it's with supplication and it's in the spirit and it's watching thereunto. I mean, you are vigilant in prayer. And you are praying for all saints. Have you prayed for the rest of the members of this assembly that they'll stand against the devil? I'm talking about being a prayer warrior. And I'm not talking about someone who slips into the choir loft for 30 seconds and prays for someone to come forward. That's how that term is often used in Arminian circles. I'm talking about a prayer warrior that prays always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit for all saints and for the ministry. And if you're doing that, you'll stand, brethren. You'll stand. The devil's going to come along and say, there aren't many of those in America. He won't need the Lord to tell him because he knows there's very few of those left. I don't know how many there are in this assembly. You say, but i got to drive a truck. And when I'm driving a truck, I'm sitting and I've got my hands on a wheel and it's hard for me to pray. You can pray always with all prayer and supplication in that truck with your hands in the steering wheel. If Hezekiah could pray while he was handling a cup of wine to Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire that could have put a piece of piano away around his neck for the simple fact that he was in there one day with a frown on his face, you can pray in a truck seat. You can pray anywhere. But how often are you moved to prayer? How often are you supplicating, begging, beseeching God for yourself, for your children, for the members of this assembly, and for your pastor that we can wage a successful battle in standing for the Lord, living for Him, and defending ourselves against the devil and the wiles of the devil? Here's how good Job was. He had seven sons and three daughters. Whenever those sons would have a day, And the other six would come to their house with the three daughters and they'd have a party. Do you know what the Bible tells us about Job? Get ready for this. I'm going to test how good a parent you are real soon. Real soon. You can get started early so that you'll like it. In Job chapter, and I'm, listen, I'm right where you are. I want to be a parent in God's estimation. You know what Job did? He rose up early in the morning. And he went to an altar, and he offered a sacrifice for every one of them. If perchance, in the levity of their partying, they might have had a vain thought against the Most High God. You say, but I help my children with their homework. That may have its place. If you get the other things done, it has a place. If you don't get the other things done, it has no place, no profit at all. Because the true profit is what I just mentioned. Job was doing that for his family. I read that in Job chapter 1. You, you know it says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. He fears God, eschews evil. He's perfect and an upright man. You read all, I get over there where he does that for his kids, and it blows, it blows me away. His children. Job knew he was wise. He could discern good and evil. A party is made for laughter. Feasting, laughter is made for feasting. And he knew that in the levity and the lack of sobriety to party, there was a good chance that they might curse God in their hearts and have a vain thought and make some boast that they shouldn't have made or engage in some levity that they shouldn't have engaged in. And so he offered a sacrifice for every one of them. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. I'm talking about old time religion. And it's not the old-time religion of 50 years ago. I'm talking about the old-time religion of saints who are willing to go to the stake and be burned to death for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And who could pray 
for those that were lighting the flames. Holy women, holy men, praying always. I don't think it needs any more. I ask you tonight, as we separate here, how good is your defense? I've told you about the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the faith, the salvation, the word of God. You can go back and remind yourselves. But what it's going to come down to, we stand in those things. But verse 18 is we've got some work to do, and it's prayer. We can change a nation. Amen. Do you believe that? When you pray, do you have enough faith? You know, when you're down on your knees and you pray for the nation, there's a dart coming. I can tell you about the darts. They'll come at you saying, who do you think you are? There's 285 million people in this country. What if 284,999,000 are praying the other way? Do you have enough faith? You can change the course of this nation. It's not by petitions. It's not by joining organizations. It's not by rebellion. It's by prayer. We can change the course of our families. We can change the course of our church. We're going to be as big spiritually as we pray. The Lord's not going to do more for us than us practicing verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 6.